Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. This will be our last sermon in Matthew for a few weeks as we round out the last of Jesus' parables here. And uh, we'll pick back up in Matthew 13, the, the tail end of it there in verse 53, and on into Matthew 14 uh, later on in the summer. As we've looked at all the parables about the kingdom, we're going to transition and do a, a brief series over the next, uh, next few weeks on setting our minds on things above. Paul calls us to set our minds on the things above, on, on heaven. And so we're going to do a series on, on heaven and the afterlife and, and a biblical view of, of heaven and hell and, and what awaits as we think about the kingdom. And so that's where we'll be in the next few weeks. But today we want to wrap up our time in Jesus' teachings and parables on the kingdom. Many of you in here are, are educators. If you're not an educator, you've been educated at some level or the other. Uh, you've gone through elementary school, middle school, high school, perhaps in a higher education, some of you, and, and on into some of you, even the, the highest edu- point of education you can achieve. And you know that in education, one of the, the principles of educating is repetition, that repetition is used. As a, as a child, we learn by repetition our glorious days of learning the multiplication tables, right? Teach us that. that. We just repeat them over and over and over again, and then they just come, and as an adult, you still remember that, and you rattle off multiplication tables most of the time accurately um, if you listen to the repetition, right? Even as an adult, you learn, you go to meetings or you go to, to speeches and you hear speeches and you hear things re- repeated. You know that, that in an address or a speech, you can often pick up the primary theme and the primary points of that speech through repetition. The State of the Union address is an easy example. Whether you agree or disagree with whichever president's giving it, at the end of that time, the, the theme or the key points are often repeated throughout the speech. You understand that. We understand that repetition is used sometimes apparent, right? As parents, we repeat that which is the most important, what we want our children to remember. Did you hear me? Did you understand this? And we'll repeat it again and again and again so that, so that they will understand it and, and take it away with them. So we understand that when things are repeated, it's to improve our retention of an important truth. Or when things are repeated, it's, it's to emphasize a point, to, a point of, of great emphasis that, that the speaker wants us to take away and learn and really focus in on. We understand the importance of repetition. Well, in Matthew 8 or 13, if you, if you want, just to kind of look back for a moment at the beginning of Matthew 13, I want you to see that, that Jesus repeats important kingdom truths through these eight parables. The, the parables that we've looked at in Matthew 13, he just repeats these important kingdom truths. So we started the, the, the study of, of Matthew 13. We began with the, the parable of sower, and you know that's 13, 1 through 9, and then he explains it later in verses 18 to 30. But the parable of the sower, he taught us that different people respond differently to the message of the kingdom, to the good news of the kingdom. But what you want to note there is it is the one who hears and understands who is in the fruit-bearing Christian, follower of Christ. And so he talks about uh, there that, that in verse 23 that it's the one who hears the word and understands it And he says, he indeed bears much fruit. He's a fruit-bearing believer. Then the parable of the weeds we looked at, it's kind of sandwiched off and on in there too in verses 24 to 30. The parable of the weeds, we learn that God providentially allows the wicked and righteous to live together until the day of judgment, that there will indeed be a day in which God judges the earth, the righteous and the wicked. We move on down to... The parables we covered last week, the, the parables of the mustard seed and leaven, and you have these two parables where Jesus repeats the same emphasis, that the kingdom will grow 
that it will influence the world around it, that we talked about how it'll, it'll grow in size as God sees fit in God's timing and God's way according to God's purpose. We talked about how it will grow and influence from within, but it will grow in the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven taught us that and as Jesus repeated that truth to make sure we understood it. And then we came down to verses 44 and 46, the parables of the treasure and the pearl. We looked at the treasure and the pearl. What was repeated there? What did Jesus teach? That the kingdom is of supreme value. It's of supreme value. Some people, they're, they're not looking for it. Perhaps that's your testimony that I wasn't really looking for God. God came looking for me and he sought me out. And he saved me. Or some are looking for it. The merchant who was looking for a pearl of great value, he was searching for it. And he found it. God revealed himself to him. Made himself known. And he saw the value, the supreme value of the kingdom. The point that Jesus teaches, the point that he repeats, is that the kingdom is of supreme worth and value that we would readily give all we have for it. Today, our, our last two parables, you, you may be thinking, okay, you're talking about all this repetition stuff. We heard the sower and the weeds, then we saw that the mustard seed and leaven repeated. We saw that the treasure and the pearl repeated. But what about the parable of the sower? What about the parable of the weeds? Well, this is where Jesus comes back around and he repeats the emphasis of those first two parables. He is driving points home for us. Today, when we look at the, the parable of the net, he's going to repeat the point, the primary emphasis that we need to gather from the parable of the weeds, that judgment will come. There will be a day of judgment. And then he closes his time with the disciples, the parable of the housemaster, and he asks them a question. And it's a question that repeats what's taught in the parable of the sower. Do you understand? Those who hear and understand are called to go and tell. It revolves around the issue of understanding as the Word of God penetrated your heart. So what then? What do we learn? What is he driving home in Matthew 13? He's, he's teaching us first that, that the kingdom will grow in God's way, in God's timing, in God's plan. That's he's driving that home. He repeats that twice in Matthew 13. Secondly, he repeats twice in Matthew 13 that the kingdom is of supreme value, something we should treasure, something that we should see valuable and give all for. Third, what he repeats is that there will be a day of judgment. A day of separation in which the righteous inherit the kingdom of heaven and the wicked are cast into hell. And then fourthly, he repeats that those who hear and understand the teachings of the kingdom are called to go and to bear fruit. Let's look at our two parables this morning. We'll hear those emphases repeated by our Lord as he teaches from the parable of the net and the parable of the housemaster. We'll pick up reading this morning in verse 47 of chapter 13 in Matthew's Gospel. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, or out of his treasure, what is new and what is old. I want us to just take a few moments and, and look at these two parables and consider what is Jesus teaching here? What do they mean? What's the significance of them? And then we'll close with just asking two important questions, one from each of these parables that we step back and look at them that really we need to consider this morning. So the first parable, the parable of the net, as I noted, it, it parallels the teaching of the parable of the weeds. 
You'll see great similarity there. In the parable of the weeds, Jesus taught, you'll remember the, about the righteous and the wicked. We had that beautiful statement in the, the parable of the weeds in verse 43 that the, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The, the statement of what it will be for the righteous, that we will indeed inherit the kingdom of heaven. But we don't see that statement though here. In, in the parable of the net, here we simply have a focus on the day of judgment. What it looks like for the wicked. He gives us here in the, the parable of Annette, similar of what he had done with the uh, other parables, the, the ones just preceding that we talked about last week. He, he uses a, a, a real-life example that teaches a point, and his example of teaching a point is focused on what it will be like for the unbeliever. The example he uses is that of, uh, of what's more than likely he's describing a dragnet. And it, it can be used in two ways in, in New Testament times. It could be uh, something where you have a, a boat here and then a boat over there, and there's a net that's in between the two boats that's drug along, and it picks up all the fish that's possible. And once it gets to, the, to a certain amount of fish where it can't catch anymore or to the spot where they, they are finished, they pull it in and, and gather all the fish out of it. Or the other way, way it could be used would be to hook it perhaps to a post right there at the shore and then have the net stretching across to a ship and then that ship moves along and scoops up and catches all the fish there along the shore between the boat and the shore. And then the net is gathered along and that's kind of the picture you, hear, you have here where, where it talks about the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted into the good containers, those that were good, and they threw away those that were bad. The fish are sorted. Fish of, of all types were drawn into the net. But not all were good. Some good, some bad. The good were kept. They were put in containers. The bad were cast away. In verse 49, we see that the intent and the purpose of Jesus telling this parable is to cast our minds to the end. To help us to understand what it's going to be like at the, the end of days. We gather, or we, we read here that in the, in the end, the evil and the righteous are gathered. Verse 49, it says, so it will be at the end of the age. It's eschatological. It's making us think of the end times. In particular, it helps us to think about the reality that there will be judgment. There are good fish and bad fish. There are believers and unbelievers. There are righteous and wicked and they will be gathered by the net of God's judgment. And in that moment, they will be judged. We will be judged. We'll be sorted by the angels. We'll be some cast into the fiery furnace, it says, who are unbelievers, who are wicked, but the, the righteous will be taken and gathered into good containers. Again, I would just point out, that the difference between this parable and the other is Jesus focuses in on what he wants us to remember is that he really does not speak a lot to the righteous. This parable is speaking to those who are unbelievers. It is a clear warning to you who gather here this morning and you sit and you listen as an unbeliever. Jesus' parable here, the parable of the net, is a clear warning that the angels, he says, will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, there's very clear in the end, there's two types of people. There's two types of fish here. He doesn't break them up into all the different types and what they look like and the sizes and, and how healthy they were and, and the species. He just simply says there's two types of fish. There's those who are good and there's those who are bad. There are the unbelievers and the believers. We have all different personalities, all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities, all different socioeconomic positions in this room. But at the end of the day, you can sort us into two groups. You're either a believer or you're not. You're either a follower of Christ or you're not. In the end, that's all that will matter. Either be a believer or not. We'll all stand before God. And in that day, there will be some who stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having trusted in Him and having been given His righteousness. And there will be others stand before Him with nothing but their own unrighteous deeds. 
Those who would stand before Him, as Ephesians 2, 3 calls, children of wrath. It's a dreadful day for those. And I want to share, before we move on to the next parable, I want to share, I thought this is a very, very good and concise description here. James Montgomery Boyce listed four facts about God's judgment that we see here in this passage. And as we think about those four facts, let me just read this to you. This is 1 John 5, 11, and 12. John gives us this truth. He says, and this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's the great dividing line, right? And so Boyce comes, and he, he looks, and he, he considers the parable of the net and the judgment of God, and he says there are four truths, four facts that we have to understand about God's judgment. The first one, he says, is it is thorough it is thorough. Everyone will be divided into righteous or unrighteous, saved or unsaved. There will be no middle ground. It's the same thing that John said in 1 John 5, 11. You either have the Son or you do not have the Son. You're a believer or you're not a believer. There is no middle ground. There's no one left straggling. There's no one that says, well, you know, I'm okay. I, I may kind of fall here. I, Jesus is good. I have a high opinion of him, so I'm probably okay. No. There's no middle ground. It's thorough. It concludes everyone. Second, he said, it is determined. It's determined. And by that, he means that the grounds for who is saved and who is not has already been determined. What are the grounds for salvation? Faith in Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone in whom we stand. He is the solid rock on which we, we stand upon in that day. In that day of judgment, we stand upon Christ or we fall. He says the, the judgment of God is determined. Jesus is the dividing line. It's not as though we're going to get there on that day of judgment and go, well, let's see what the basis is going to be. Let's see what it is. Let's see how it shakes out, what God decided to, to, to make the, the, the thing that gets me into heaven or, or hell. I, I don't know. No, we know. The dividing line is Jesus Christ. You either have the Son or you do not have the Son. You have life or you do not. You're a believer or you're an unbeliever. There is no middle ground. And the grounds are determined. Third, he says it's permanent. The judgment of God is permanent. On, on that day, there is no opportunity to repent. That opportunity is past. You don't get a second shot. This is your opportunity this is the day of salvation. Here the biblical writer says, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah. Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion, but turn to Christ in faith. This is your opportunity. When the judgment of God is upon you, it is permanent. There are no second chances. So it is thorough, it is determined, it is permanent. And fourth, he says that the end of the wicked will be dreadful. It'll be dreadful. There'll be much weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus says here. Much weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's nowhere in Scripture that the end for which the unbeliever is viewed in a positive light as something that you would shrug, shrug your shoulders at, as something that is light, no big deal. It will not be a good end. It is a dreadful, grievous time. Our second parable it's found in verse 51 to 52, the parable of the housemaster. Now, some, some don't consider this a parable. You may have a study Bible, and you may read that study Bible, and your study Bible may say Matthew 13 has seven parables, and, and others are going to say it has eight parables. Well, the reason is some people don't consider the housemaster to be a parable. I do see it as a parable, and the reason why is that the, you see the same grammatical structure. If you look he asked them a question, right? He asked the disciples, have you understood these things? They answer yes. Now, that's probably a little overly confident. You know, the disciples, oh yeah, of course we understand, right? Jesus goes, okay, and moves on. But he says to them, and if you look at the structure here, he structures it the same as the parables. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like. It's the same thing that he's been saying. It is like he's giving them an example, an illustration to help them understand what he's teaching them. So the, the scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like. And so we see it as a parable that, that draws back on the parable of the sower. 
It draws back to that. If you think about verse 51, he asks them, have you understood these things? Now look at the beginning of the chapter in verse 19 of chapter 13. In verse 19, what do, what do we see? He's explaining the parable to the sower. And he talks about the one, remember, he, there's some seed that's cast along the path that's really rocky and, and the seed is snatched away really quickly. He talks about the enemy coming, Satan comes and he snatches the seed away and, and takes it away. Well, this seed that's sown along rocky ground, in verse 19, what do we see? It says, this is the one who hears the word of the kingdom and what? Does not understand it. Doesn't understand it. Now, if you skip down to verse 23, that same parable, he, he talked about the other, the other seed, right? Some, some seed that rooted up really quickly. It, it grew really quickly, but the root was really shallow. And so when the trials of life came, it, it withered and died. And there was some seed that fell among thorns. And, and that seed started growing up, but the thorns just choked it out. The cares of the world, the love of the world choked it out, right? Well, then you get to the fourth soil, Verse 23, and what do we read there? It's the good soil. This is the one who hears the word and what? Understands it. He's the one that understands it. Now, the, the character, and we talked about this and we looked at the, the parable of the sower, the character of the one who understands it is what? How do we see that? What does it usher forth in? Fruit bearing. It bears fruit. This, this person is not perfect. This person is, is not got everything figured out, but there's evidence of the work of God in their lives. They're bearing fruit. They're producing fruit in their lives. He says in one case, a hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. They're bearing fruit. They're fruit-bearing Christians. And so now he teaches on the kingdom. He gives them these parables, and he sits down, he looks at his disciples in the eyes, and he says, do you understand? Do you understand these things? Are you one that has heard and understood? Or are you one who heard and didn't understand? It just bounced off. You heard it and said, okay, that's a good story, Jesus. I'm going to go take care of what I need to take care of. Or have you heard, considered, thought deeply upon it, responded, and applied it to your life? Have you heard and understood? He looks and says, do you understand these things? And the disciples say, yes, yes. And so in the parable of the sower, the one who says, yes, I understood, then goes forth and bears fruit. Now look what he says here. He says, therefore, okay, you said yes. Every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven then is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The scribe of the kingdom here is not talking about the official role of the scribe, the position of the scribe. It's the scribe who's been trained in the kingdom of heaven. It is the disciple of Jesus. It's the follower of Christ. And what is he like? He's like a master of a house. And the master of a house has this treasure. He doesn't hoard it. He doesn't keep it hidden in the closet, but he, he has this treasure and he brings out from it, what? Things that are old and things that are new. He's like the the art collector who has a, a prized art collection. And, and perhaps his, his most prized piece is, is that of the 17th century Dutch artist Rembrandt. And he loves Rembrandt. He loves how Rembrandt was known for these self-portraits, just remarkable self-portraits. And he loves it. It's the pride of his collection. Somebody comes over and he says, hey, look at this. Look, look. And you go and you see this old painting. But then right after you finish, you're looking at it. He says, hey, hey, but you got to check this out too. Look at this guy. I just met him five or six years ago, and he, he's so impacted by Rembrandt. He loves Rembrandt as well, and he's painting, and he's inspired by Rembrandt's style. And look, it's a little different, but he's building on Rembrandt, and he shows you, and it's his prized collection as well. That which is old, he prizes, but he values and prizes that which is new. He brings it out. He shows you. He demonstrates. He teaches about it. He talks about it. Well, what is Jesus talking about here? What, what is Jesus trying to teach us when he, when he talks about this housemaster who brings out of his treasure that which is old and that which is new, that which would, would be foundational and that which would be new to put before you? What is he teaching about here? 
The kingdom scribe is what? The kingdom scribe is the one who is a follower of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19 to 20 at the end of the gospel? The Great Commission, what does he say? Just go tell people about Jesus and then leave them. Don't worry about them. Just throw the gospel out there and take off. Does he say that? He doesn't. He doesn't. Those of you who, who know what Matthew 28, 19, and 20 say, you know what he says. He says, go and, and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and what is our task then? We are to teach them, right? We're teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. The disciple is one who goes and makes disciples, teaching them what he has learned, teaching them what Christ has commanded. Discipleship involves teaching and learning. The scribes of the Old Testament, the scribes in Jesus' day, the the ones who have that position, that office of scribe, and the Pharisees, they are ones who teach the Old Testament. They teach the old truths and what they've been taught and passed down. The kingdom scribes understand both the value of the Old Testament, what the scribes and Pharisees taught. They understand the value and the truth and the foundation of God's word in the Old Testament. They also understand the value and the truth and the importance of the revealed mysteries of God in the gospel through Jesus Christ. They understand the value of that. That's why we, we looked at Hebrews 1. We read in Hebrews 1 there that long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God indeed spoke to them that the Old Testament is the inspired word of God. But, he says in Hebrews, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, by his son. That God has revealed himself. He's revealed the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the, 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 the special revelation of the gospel through Jesus Christ. But it's important here. Jesus Christ isn't, he doesn't say, you know what, uh, long ago God spoke by the prophets, but, but guess what, uh, now Jesus is here and you need to just cast aside the Old Testament. Just forget it. It's worthless now. It's replaced by Jesus. We don't see that here and we don't hear that from Christ. Remember in, in Matthew 6, what does Jesus say? I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. What do you say? I came to fulfill them right? I came to fulfill them. I came to give you understanding and revelation to see what it truly means at the core. What is the core of that law? What is the core of that teaching? What does it teach us about the character of God? And so the scribes of the kingdom of heaven are those who understand the promises of the Old Testament and how in Christ every one of them find their yes and their amen. So what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus Christ, that is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. The scribes that have been trained in the kingdom understand that Jesus came making known the kingdom of heaven and fulfilling the law. They understand that and they bring it forth. They bring it forth. Because not only do kingdom scribes know these things, they bring them out. Not only are we called to know and to worship and to exalt our Savior, we're called to proclaim the good news that salvation is through Christ alone. We are called to bring out the truths of Scripture. We're called to make known the gospel. Remember when Jesus in Matthew 10, those of you who are with us in that study, we go through Matthew 10. Do you remember Matthew 10 is where he's sending out the disciples? It's the evangelism discourse, the missions discourse. He's sending them out. And he talks to them in Matthew 10 and verse 26 and 27. He calls them, don't, don't have any fear of the people you go to. Don't have any fear of what happens, what they say. He says, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And then listen to what he says. He says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And we talked about that when we covered Matthew 10. We talked about how the calling of the disciple, the follower of Christ, is to proclaim Christ, right? To bring him out, to make him known, to share the gospel. That is our calling. And that's what he says here. Those who understand, if you hear and you understand, we have a responsibility to go and to teach, to go and to tell, to bring forth that which is old and that which is new. Now, Let's ask two important questions about these parables. 
two important questions. Here's the first one. Why must God judge between the righteous and the unrighteous? Why must God judge between the righteous and the unrighteous? Now, listen carefully to the question. The question is not, does God judge between the righteous and the unrighteous? He does. We, we covered that a few weeks ago. We're not going to cover that today. He does. Scripture is very clear. He does judge the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay? The question is why? Why does he do that? And not only why does he, but why must he judge between the righteous and the unrighteous? I mean, we talked about how we studied the parable of the weeds, that it, the day of judgment is going to be glorious for a believer. It's glorious. But the day of judgment for an unbeliever is going to be grievous. It's going to be a day of reckoning. It's going to be a, a day in which the reality and severity of eternal punishment is awful. So the question then is, why must God, who, who Scripture describes as loving and merciful and gracious and good and kind, why, why must He judge the wicked? I mean, wouldn't it really display his mercy if he just had mercy over all the earth, all people? If he just showed mercy to all? Is it, is it really loving for, for God to, to look and see kind and nice people and because they have not trusted in Jesus Christ, cast them into the lake of fire, to cast them into the fiery furnace for eternal punishment where it will be weeping and gnashing of teeth? <laughs> Is that loving of God? To cast an unbeliever into the same place in which he will cast Satan? And men throughout history have committed some of the most heinous acts you can possibly imagine. Well, to answer this question, we have to understand and wrap our head around what's called the simplicity of God. The, the simplicity of God. Now, this, this isn't as simplicity as compared to complexity. It's simplicity compared to something that is compound. It, simplicity of God means that, that God is, is not made up of this compound set of attributes that combine to make him who he is. It, it's not like God is this really fancy, big Lego creation in which you've got all the red Legos and the yellow Legos and the blue Legos and the black ones and the gray and the green, and you've got all these Legos that are making God who he is. And, and you really like the green ones because they're your favorite color. You don't really like the black ones. They're kind of downers. And so let's just get rid of the black Legos. We'll just cast those aside. No, that's not it. God is not this compound being that's made up of all these different attributes that you just plug in and you can get rid of one. Or, or it's not as though he, can, he acts according to one attribute and just neglects the other. It's not as though that if, he is, if he's compound, it would be as though he could say, well, I'm going to be loving today, but then tomorrow I'm not going to be loving. He doesn't act in one way this day and then act in another that way. That would destroy who he is. That would be this compound understanding. The simplicity of God is that God is simply, entirely, completely who he is. Every attribute of who God is is who he is in completion, in entirety, in whole. So he is completely holy or he is entirely holy. He is completely uh, merciful. He is completely loving. He is entirely righteous, entirely just. It is who he is. That's why you read in Scripture, you read in Psalm 99.9 that God is holy. You read in 1 John 4.8, God is love. In Psalm 145.17, God is righteous. In John 14.6, God is 
truth. And also, God is life. In Deuteronomy 32.4, God is just. And in Psalm 107.1, God is good. It is who He is in His entirety. In His entirety. It's not as though He just shows these qualities. It's not as though He just has these qualities. Like, I'm a, I'm a patient man, right? Except for when I'm hungry. It's not how God operates. God simply is. It's not as though he, he has that and he doesn't have it. No, he is. They are who he is in his entirety. Now, why, why is this important? The reason it's important, we think about the idea that a loving and a merciful God would show holy wrath, right, and judge the unrighteous. It's important because it means that because God is holy, just, loving, and merciful, He cannot and He will not set one of those characteristics aside for the sake of showing the other. He can't just cease to be holy. He can't just cease to be just. He can't just cease to be righteous so that He can come and show His love and mercy and grace. That's just not how it works. It's not possible because in God's simplicity, He is holy, he is righteous, he is just, he is merciful, he is gracious. It's who he is. He doesn't just set aside or quit being one or the other. So to show mercy towards unbelievers and not send them to hell would require that he not be holy and just. That's problematic. Because God is God and He doesn't cease to be. He is holy. So the reason that God must punish the unbeliever, must punish the wicked, the unrighteous, is that He is holy, He is just, He is righteous. Now, some of you may be thinking, your mind's spinning, you're like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Okay, then the flip is true. Then how can he be merciful to believers and still be holy and just? How can he just then pour out all his grace and love towards you but still be holy and just? Listen, it, it, all, it works the same way. It works the same way. He can't just set aside one for us. He doesn't cease to be holy and just to, to show us mercy. Just like he's not going to cease to be gracious in showing you justice. This this is the beauty. This is the amazing, amazing truth of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because in that moment, in that act, God's full holiness and His full justice are poured out in wrath upon Jesus Christ for the punishment of sin. Full display of the wrath and the holiness and the justness and the righteousness of God at the cross of Calvary. And in that moment, the full love, the full mercy, the entire grace of God is shown to Jesus, to sinners, I should say, in the death of Christ on the cross. It's all, it's a glorious display of God and His character in one moment. The full, entire justice and holiness of God displayed in the full entire justice and gra or grace and mercy of God. Romans 3, I think, captures this. And, and we see and we hear Paul writing. Listen to Romans 3, verses, um, verse 23. We'll pick up 23, 26. Most of you in here know Romans 3, 23. I would imagine you've heard it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. At the cross, we see the depth and enormity of God's grace. And we see the depth and enormity of His holiness. That sin is not excused 
It is not brushed aside. It is not forgotten. It is not overlooked. No, God in His holiness and justice and righteousness pours out His divine wrath upon sin. But the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, the demonstration of God's supreme love and the entirety of His love and grace and who He is, died as a propitiation. He took the wrath of God upon Himself for sinners such as you and I. The grace and the love, the mercy of God displayed fully on the cross. Why must He punish sinners? Why must there be a day of judgment? Because God is holy. He is righteous. He is just. And thanks be to God, He is merciful. He is gracious. He is loving and kind and good. The second question we need to ask relates to the second parable. Why must we bring out both the new and the old truths of God? Why, why must we bring them all out? Listen, the, the temptation in, in our day is to just be a, a, a New Testament Christian. Just don't really worry about the Old Testament. Let's just, let's just stay in the New Testament. It, there's been popular pastors over the last few years who have used terminology of unhitching from the Old Testament. Who say, you know, that, we're, we're just going to leave that behind. We don't need to stay there with all that legalism and we're going to move on. Our God's a God of grace and love. This is typically done. Why would, why would someone do that? It's typically done for several reasons. Perhaps because some of the foundational teachings of Scripture would be opposed to theories of evolution. The scriptures teach very clearly that God created all things. Or, or perhaps it's the, the pressure that the clear teachings of the Old Testament run contrary to cultural views of sexuality and marriage. Or perhaps it's due to events in the Old Testament that, that, that kind of make us uneasy about God's holiness and His wrath, how it's poured out upon sinful man. And so people try to separate and go, well, the God of the Old Testament is like this, the God of the New Testament is like this. Well, again, we need to understand the simplicity of God. God doesn't cease to be anything He is. He doesn't become any more than He already was. God is God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. There is no just God and then a merciful God. That's not the picture of Scripture. Scripture shows us and teaches us and reveals to us that God is holy and merciful and gracious and kind and good and righteous and just all throughout from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. God is God. We must not separate the two. The teaching of, of Christ, the teaching all throughout the New Testament is that the Old Testament should be, it should be treasured, it should be trusted, it should be taught. We see that throughout the New Testament. We see it from Jesus himself. We see, remember the, the road to Emmaus? Remember after Christ is arisen, there's a couple of his followers, a couple of disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and, and Jesus joins with them, and they don't see, their, face are not, their eyes are not in veil, they don't see, they don't realize who Christ is, and he's talking with them. And he sits down, and they eat, and he, he starts teaching them. In, in Luke 24, 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. <laughs> and Jesus sits down. He doesn't sit down with Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He doesn't sit down with Ephesians and go, listen, Ephesians 2 is incredible. If you don't know your Bible chronology, the reason he didn't do that is one, Ephesians hadn't been written yet. Neither had Corinthians, right? He sits down with the Old Testament. He sits down and says, look, let me show you. Let me just start. Let's look at Moses. Let's look at everything that Moses wrote. Let's look at everything that Moses did. Let's look at how, how all, of, all of his life was, is, was guided by a sovereign God. Let me show you. This is just pointing to me. It's pointing to me. Let me show you. It's the same thing we see. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17. We read there, listen to what, what Paul writes. He, he writes 2 Timothy 3, um, and he's writing to Timothy, and listen to what he says. He says, um, oh, back up to 14. 
continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now again, Paul's writing Timothy. The sacred writings are the Old Testament Scriptures, right? And what about them, Paul? He says you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the Old Testament that makes you wise to understand your need for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he, he goes on and he, he says that uh, all Scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Paul's teaching here that the Old Testament writings lead to salvation. They're profitable. They equip us for God's calling upon our lives. We can't just set aside the Old Testament. We can't just leave it behind. I want to just give you really quickly, really quickly, five reasons why. Five reasons that we bring forth treasure as Christians, as kingdom scribes, that we would bring forth treasure from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? Just five quick reasons. One, the Old Testament reveals the character of God. It helps us better understand who God is. I mean, just think for a moment, you who are believers, would you fully understand God's eternality, His holiness, His justness, His mercy, His power, His faithfulness, sovereignty, His steadfast love, if you didn't have the Old Testament, would you understand it as fully? No, we wouldn't, right? We wouldn't. So, so first, the Old Testament reveals the character of God. Second, the Old Testament reveals many mighty works of God. It reveals these mighty works that we need to see that bolsters and strengthens our faith, that steadies our faith in the days of trouble. It's in the Old Testament that we learn how God created the heavens and the earth, the power of His Word, the spoken Word. He creates, created all things. We learn in the Old Testament that He parted the sea, that He fought for His people. He caused the sun to stand still. He delivered man from the flood, showing a great Profound demonstration of mercy. See, Old Testament reveals the mighty works of God. Third, the Old Testament reveals promises of God. It teaches us that God is faithful. Why? Because we see the promises made and we understand and we learn that every promise made by God is a promise kept by God. We see that He is supremely faithful. We look and we read and we learn that God promised to never flood the earth again. We read that he promised to carry out his covenant commitment to his people. He promised to create and establish a new covenant with his people. And he promised to send a savior for his people. We see the promises of God made. And then in the New Testament, we get to see and rest and rejoice in the promises of God kept. Number four, the Old Testament points to Christ, that we might know that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. It, it points to Christ. It directs our gaze forward to him. It points to the fact that he would be born of a virgin. It teaches us that he would be called the Son of Man. It shows us that he would heal the lame, he would release the captives, that he would give sight to the blind. It shows us and teaches us that he would be suffering servant. And by so doing, he would deliver his people from their sins. The Old Testament points us to Christ. The fifth, the Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. It's the foundation. You understand that everything that you study and read rests upon the foundation of the Old Testament. It rests upon it. The gospel makes sense because of the Old Testament. Do you know how hard it would be to understand this idea that, that Jesus Christ would be called a lamb? What would that mean if you didn't have the Old Testament? Why would it be important for Jesus Christ to die on a cross, to give his life, to shed blood, were it not for the truths and the foundations of the Old Testament? 
that teach us that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He, he draws back and is drawing on the Old Testament, the sacrificial systems. And we see that. That sin must be atoned for. It must be paid for. And we see that time and time and time again through the Old Testament. And time and time and time again, we see it over and over and over that the sacrifices offered by the priests are temporary and insufficient to pay enduringly for the sins of man. But then you come to the New Testament and Jesus Christ dies, the spotless Lamb of God. He dies and He sheds His blood once for all. Because His sacrifice is sufficient to do what the sacrifices of the Old Testament were insufficient to do. The Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. We must not set it aside. We teach, we treasure, we trust both of them. So I think it leaves this today as we close with a decision for the two groups of people sitting here today. We all have a decision. There's two groups. One, we talked about that we're either believers or unbelievers. So unbelievers, the clear emphasis that Jesus gives us in this parable and in the parable of the weeds is there will be a day of judgment. God will indeed punish those who are not saved by the blood of Christ, who have not trusted in Him. The good news of the gospel is that He has made a way that saver, sinners are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That the unrighteous are made righteous by Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And it's not about achieving something. It's not about doing something. It's not about saying the right things. It's not about going to church. Now, there's a lot of people that go to church all their life who've never trusted Christ. The question isn't, do you go to church? The question is, do you trust in Christ alone? That's the question. The good news is if you turn from your sins and you trust Christ for salvation, that you will be saved. You will be saved. On the day of judgment, you stand in that moment and you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's it. I just trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, by your grace alone. That's it. So the question for you, hearing the warnings of Jesus Christ, would you turn from your sins and trust Christ? Would you repent and believe in Christ for salvation? For believers here, the question is the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. Have you understood these things? Have you understood the parables of Matthew 13? Have you understood that the kingdom is immensely valuable have you understood that it will grow influence from within and without have you understood that the believer is a fruit bearing believer have you understood then bear fruit then bring forth from your treasure to those around you. Don't hoard it. Don't act as though it's just mine. I don't want to tell anybody. Bring it forth. Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. Let's pray.